we actually have the best of both worlds. We, we have a proximate retailer that just exists in the cloud, um, and we have a lawn um, and a cheaper house. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And, it, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume. I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Because, see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap. Like, you know, back in the day, like, you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. All right, welcome, Derek. We have Derek Thompson here with The Atlantic. Uh... Your latest piece, The Pandemic Will Change American Retail Forever. We're discussing that today. Uh, we had an interesting exchange on Twitter, and we had an, a more in-depth exchange in, in direct, direct message. So we're going to discuss where we contend on this topic. Great. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write this piece. So uh, I, I'm very interested in, uh, in retail, in media, in tech, um, and in the future of just business generally. And I typically like to relate my writing to you know, the, the lived experience of, uh, of readers and to myself. And the lived experience of retail is for many people, you know, a, uh, the street, uh, whether it's suburban street, you know, going to a mall or an urban street, you know, walking down uh, M Street or 25th Street, which is where I live in Washington, D.C. And so that's literally how I began this article is I, I walked down the street and looked to my left and right. And what I saw were uh, a line of darkened windows. And I wondered aloud to myself, uh, I wonder which of these stores are going to be able to come back in six months, 12 months. And that's where the piece began. This question of, uh, you know, we are all holding our breath right now. We're in this national freeze. Who will survive uh, the freeze, who will be able to hold their breath. Um, and I talked to a bunch of experts, uh, business owners, analysts, uh, commercial real estate people about uh, sort of urban retail, uh, thinking through uh, what kind of companies would survive as is, what kind of companies would have to change, and what kind of companies would not be able to make it. Uh, and that was basically my, my posture for writing the whole article. What, if anything, did those experts explain about what they felt um, in regard to the companies that would make it or, or, or wouldn't make it through this time? Yeah, I think, I think it's, I, I try in my piece to be very clear that I'm making sort of short-term predictions and long-term predictions. Um, I think another sort of, you know, meta breakdown that was useful for me when writing the piece is understanding that, you know, we're in a period of extraordinary change at the moment. And people like you and me are trying to figure out which of these changes are going to be durable. And there's different kinds of changes. Um, there are accelerations, there are interruptions, and there are inventions, uh, accelerations, uh, taking a trend that's already happening and accelerating it. So think of something like uh, the death of department stores or uh, the death of struggling malls or the growth of e-commerce. All those things were kind of happening already, you could say, in 2017, 18, 19, and they're being accelerated uh, by the plague. Um, you also have interruptions, uh, say, to something like a dine-in restaurant service. Right now on Open Table, there are zero uh, Open Table reservations being made for dine-in service in Washington, D.C. and New York and maybe also Columbus. Um, that is not normal, and that's hopefully not going uh, to last uh, more than a year or two years until we have uh, antivirals and a vaccine. I do believe that at, at some point 
uh, people will eat out at restaurants again. So that's kind of, that's more of an interruption. And then you also have uh, inventions, uh, which I think are, are rarer. But I think, for example, you have a lot of people uh, who had never been on Zoom before going on Zoom, or you have senior citizens who had never uh, ordered groceries online before. They had never used something like Instacart, but they're recognizing that, hey, it's just as easy to buy a book as to buy um, a head of lettuce online, um, provided that you can uh, get your booking uh, for, for Instacart, because I understand that's very competitive in lots of parts of the country. And so th- those behaviors are being invented. And in looking at, at the future of retail, I think it's always important to distinguish between the accelerations, the inventions, and the interruptions. The retailers that were doing poorly going into this crisis are highly unlikely to come out in any better shape than they were going in. In fact, there's a host of them that may not even make it out of this crisis. Uh, if, if their business strategies weren't successful several months ago, uh, what is it that they can do to improve their, their, their outlook? And of course, retailers with a problematic debt are in a tremendous form of distress just because of the crisis that's being uh, shut down poses. And the third issue, which everyone faces, is the enormous risk uh, attendant with no one being able to predict when the economy will open up, to what degree it'll open up, right. where it'll open up, and of course, how will customers respond stores being reopened. You have a paragraph that stood out more than most, in my opinion. Uh, I loved this. You said, by obliterating the face-to-face economy, the coronavirus will return America's, <clears throat> excuse me, will return Americans to a blend of virtual commerce and home prep that is reminiscent of the late 19th century. You go on to explain, uh, you know, Sears and uh, the advent of the catalog. Um, I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, here is where our beliefs sort of diverged. Um, in your estimation, uh, this experience, this pandemic experience, will breed sort of the crumbling of the urban retail landscape. Um, in my estimation, I believe it's the beginning of the, the, the bubble bursting in the, in the suburbs. And by the suburbs, I, I do want to specify that I'm talking about the middle-class suburbs. So I live in Columbus, mm-hmm. Ohio. If I had to give, give you a range of what the middle-class suburbs, suburbs were, I'd say your home is between $150,000 and $275,000, right? Mm-hmm. So all of the retail, the retail landscape that exists in those areas are being absolutely pummeled right now. Um, mm-hmm. As you project it forward... It's my belief that as those shopping centers and shopping malls falter and, you know, they remain boarded up over time, they remain empty, then eventually it will trickle down to residential real estate values. A lot of people will then be underwater for the loans that they took out on those hundred fifty dollars to $275,000 homes. Right. Um, I think it's an interesting prediction. So let me, uh, let me turn the tables and, and ask you some questions about this vision. Um, so uh, first, give me a sense of how uh, the retail in these middle-class suburbs um, are doing right now, um, and give me a sense of how population growth in this swath of middle-class suburbs that you're looking at are doing right now. Because I do think that there's, you know, there, there is often an, an intersection between population growth and, and the viability of retail, and sometimes that can go both ways. Um, but yeah, just give me a sense of, of how that demographic is doing at the moment. Well, to your point in your piece, you argue that 
the su- the suburbs are growing as 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 you know as we speak. Um, you're right, they are. Uh, living in the city is expensive, no matter what city you live in. That could be New York, that could be Nashville, that could be Columbus, that could be Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, it people are incentivized to live in the suburbs right now for this reason. Um, you know, your money goes longer there. Mm-hmm. The the problem is we're we're talking at least. In my estimation, we're talking three to seven years from now, mm-hmm. when when it no longer, when the price alone no longer incentivizes that family of three, or that bachelor or bachelorette, to buy that hundred fifty to two hundred seventy five thousand dollars starter home, in that middle class suburb. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sorry, go ahead. No, so, so okay, so what you're saying is uh, you're, you're going to see. The failure of retail, as more of it, I, I presume, you know, moves online. Uh, the failure of retail will reduce. Uh, it will reduce, you know, uh, sort of commercial taxes for the area. Um, then you'll have amenities start to deplete. Uh, as amenities deplete, it'll become less desirable uh, to live there, and people will 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 leave. And so you might have sort of this desiccation of of middle class of middle class suburbs, the same way that in a way. Uh, you sort of had the desiccation of exurban areas um, uh, after the Great Recession. Uh, it was a different sort of causal mechanism. It wasn't uh, the collapse of retail that did it. It was uh, the collapse of, of home values first and foremost um, and, and, uh, and defaults and foreclosures. Um, but you could see the same desiccation. That's essentially what you're pr- predicting. I would love to know where you think those people are going to move because I could, I could imagine that they That's might a- leave those suburbs um, but they're going to leave them for somewhere else. So, so where, who's going to welcome them into their open arms? That's a great question. And that's where, you know, the two of us can really get into an interesting conversation. Um, I believe that the people that can afford it will move back to the city center. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at 1954, right. Mm-hmm. And Brown v. Board of Education, mm-hmm. desegregation, mm-hmm. right. There was, a, there was a, a sort of an en masse departure of, of urban America, across the country mm-hmm. to these new exurban areas, you know, cookie cutter suburbs, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> people were incentivized to move and they followed suit. Um, what I'm saying now is that the folks that can afford to live in the urban areas of these major metrop- metropolitan areas will do so. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see sort of a flip, right? So, the 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 working class to the lower middle class will live in these areas where things aren't so um, aren't so convenient anymore, mm-hmm. right? They the retail landscape is is you know uh, let's say fifty to sixty percent of what it was in two thousand twenty, and on top of that, Amazon and Instacart and all these last mile services don't deliver as efficiently to those areas, so there's less. Of a, there's less of a means to get the, the essential goods that you need to your front door. Mm-hmm. That means you're driving longer distances to get essentials like like um, like groceries or or light bulbs, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. We are, we're we're essentially seeing the reversal of what happened in in 1955, and I I hope that one day you write about this because I don't think there's anyone better to discuss this. But um, you know, when you look at retail. And the advent of malls, the expansion of malls, mm-hmm. there is a direct line between Brown v. Board of Education's legislation and the government incentive to provide tax credits to developers to build retail centers 
in X urban areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That began the processes that began the process of us being over retailed. Yeah. So when when you look at the definition of over retail, it's as simple as this. We are, I think, by last measure, this goes back to Q4 2019. There's 23.5 square feet per capita in the United States of America. In Canada, that number is 16. Yeah. In Europe, that number is 11 or 12. In China, that number is (laughs) 2.8. Okay. So you have to look at the landscape, the entire the, the entire globe, and you can say what's different about the United States. Well. There are a ton of differences, but even compared to Canada, what's the difference between the United States and Canada, and why do we have 40% more in square footage of retail? Mm-hmm. You know the answer to that question. Well, I think that we have for at least 70 years and probably longer encouraged through the kind of federal policies that you're alluding to, the suburbanization of America. And so as Americans sprawled, so did retail. Um, and we've offered a lot of tax breaks, as you were also alluding to, to to build out retail space in those suburbs. And that's you know why the U.S. has 10 times more shopping space per capita than Germany. It's why we have you know, maybe whatever, 20, 25 times more shopping space per capita uh, than China. Uh, we are overbuilt and oversprawled and overretailed uh, because in many ways, that's what federal and uh, local law encourage. That's well well said. And so when you look at our e-commerce adoption rate, which in Q4 2019, it was 11.2%. And you compare that to China's, which in Q4 2019 was close to 37%. Mm -hmm. There are numerous differences between the countries, and I'm not trying to understate those differences. But you could extrapolate pretty easily what it looks like once America gets to 37%. We will have less of a use for a lot of those retail facilities. Yeah. So let me. So there will be less infrastructure in these suburbs. Yes. Uh, so I, I think I think it's I think the the vision that you've laid out is is absolutely it, it's plausible. Um, I, I want to give sort of uh, three reasons why I think um, it is more likely in the next few years. Uh, and, and I, you know, my, my piece sort of predicts a kind of accordion effect on urbanization. I think a lot of people are going to. Uh, leave cities in the next year or two, maybe three, sort of the imagine the accordion bellows sort of going out a period of suburbanization. And then I think that that very phenomenon is going to make cities cheaper. And so the accordion is going to come in again. And much of the history of American urbanization is sort of this accordion movement. It's people moving out to the suburbs and moving back in and then moving back out, moving back in. Um, So let me just give you my vision for why I think the short term future of cities is that of out migration to the suburbs. Um, Reason number one is it's already happening. Uh, uh, You already see uh, urban populations declining and suburban populations growing. Um, That is a function uh, of prices. It's a function, as uh, you and I have both said now, of of law, of of 70 years of of American law. But it's also a function, I think, of um, American preferences. I think that American families um, like space. Um, they want space. They love amenities. They love restaurants. They love being able to entertain their kids. Um, but they also like lawns um, and they like big houses. Um, and a lot of them want to live in the suburbs if they can. Um, number two, uh, I think that you see, you know, construction right now happening mostly in suburban America. Um, you see a lot of cities in the U.S. Columbus is actually a, an exception here because it's, it's, I think, I do believe that Columbus is the only city east of the Mississippi and north of the Mason-Dixon line 
that is where the downtown area is adding population and has been for the last two years. Almost every other downtown area is losing population. So it's an awesome exception, but it is an exception. Um, instead, the, the, it's the, the suburbs of the Sunbelt um, that are seeing a lot of growth. If you sort of imagine the Sunbelt extending from the Carolinas through to Texas and into Arizona uh, and Las Vegas, um, that's where construction is happening. That's where the, the houses that will be affordable are. And you see less construction happening in you know cities on the coast and even in cities, um, I think, uh, like, like Nashville, I think, are going to have their own uh, NIMBY problems um, in, in the next few years. Uh, so I think that when you put that together, the sort of the, the fact that family formation tends to push people to the suburbs, construction is happening in the suburbs. And then finally, you mentioned e-commerce, that it might be less efficient in the suburbs than, than in cities. Um, well, e-commerce right now is, is I think, having an ex- a moment of acceleration. I think you're, you're seeing a lot of people across the country recognize um, uh, just how critical it can be uh, to their livelihoods. Um, and that, I think, is going to draw more companies that might not have previously seen themselves as predominantly in the delivery or e-commerce business, like grocers, start to invest more, um, you know, deepen their relationship with Instacarts or build out their um, their own businesses, which is going to accelerate the sort of all-delivery economy um, for grocers, which means that even if you live in the suburbs, let's say, in a house that's, you know, $175,000, and you don't have a, a you know, a, a, a grocer down the street that you love, maybe it, it closed because of uh, uh, problems related to um, the pandemic, or maybe the mall closed related to problems um, uh, that arose during the pandemic. You'll still have Amazon, you'll still have Walmart delivery, you'll still potentially have Instacart. Um, and so you'll enjoy uh, the Sears economy that, that we were just talking about, the ability to participate in a virtual economy of goods um, uh, vis-a-vis the Amazons and Instacarts, while also having your own plot of land, um, uh, the same way they did in the 1890s uh, with Sears and the Sears Bible. Uh, so I, I, I think that, that that is at least where I'm, I'm more willing to sort of stake my money for the next five years. You know, after, after five years, who knows? You, there's so many variables that can come into play, and it's hard to know how this pandemic itself is going to play out. Um, but I just, I just feel like it's more likely that you have an accelerated exodus from urban areas um, rather than uh, a, a, a move into urban areas. One, one more reason that I would just give for why I think that... that um, that movement out of urban areas is, is more likely. And here I'm thinking of New York and Los Angeles and, and DC, you know, you know, richer coastal uh, cities, um, but also places, you know, like, like Nashville and, and Kansas City and, and Denver. Um, I think that a lot of the things that make cities special, um, their buzz, their vibrancy, their diversity, their feeling of density, um, their crowds, that thrum and hum of a crowd that the people move to dense areas uh, to be a part of, um, a lot of that's going to dissipate in the next year um, as you know the economy slowly opens up into a socially distanced um, uh, outside world. Uh, and I think that's going to cause a lot of people to think, all right, if I'm already living in a downtown area where prices are really high, but we're all socially distanced as if we live in a suburb anyway, why not just pay 30% less and move to the suburbs? Um, and I just think a lot of millennial starting families are, are, are going to do uh, are going to do just that. After the Great Recession and then the economic downturn, the cities were booming. I think we all saw it. The thought was people wanted to be able to walk to work and, and live a little bit closer to downtown life. But what we've seen in the last couple of years is a flock to the suburbs, especially by millennials. And if you think about it, they're 23 to 38 years old now. 
So they're somewhat belatedly, many of them able to start a household, get married, start a family, and do what their parents and their grandparents did, which is move to the suburbs. That's a really fascinating point, and it's really hard to contend with, I'll be honest with you. Um, if I did have a contention, um, I think it's really important to separate the definitions of suburbs and exurban areas. Mm-hmm. I think in our previous conversations, you mentioned Alexandria, Virginia. Ar- Arlington, right? yeah, but they're right it, next to each other. Yeah. Sorry, Arlington, correct. I apologize. Um, you would classify that as an exurban area. I would classify it as a, uh, as, a as, as suburban um, or urban light. It's, you know, it's right across the river from DC. It's actually parts of it are even, uh, are even denser than DC because it doesn't have a, a height restriction like DC has. So there are skyscrapers in Roslyn, Arlington that are, that are taller than any building in DC, but it's, it's definitely a suburb. It's definitely not, you know, a, a city like DC is. Yeah. So one thing that I'm seeing in the Midwest, you know, I, so I have a daughter. She's 12. We have two daughters, but my oldest daughter's 12 and we travel the country for her soccer team. And so we go to St. Louis, we go to Nashville, we go to all these, all these different cities and all these states and all. It's really fascinating to see development in the context of cities built outside of cities. Mm-hmm. So let's look at Dublin, Ohio, for, for, for example. Dublin, Ohio has always existed. It's existed for quite some time. But one thing that you're seeing in the last several years is they are essentially saying, hey, live in Dublin, you know, instead of driving to the mall or driving to the new city center or to the old city center of Columbus, Ohio, we're going to build you a downtown here. And they've successfully built a beautiful downtown area in what was essentially an un- unincorporated suburb. It's its own, it's, it's a city, but with its own downtown now. Um, that's not possible if stores don't exist. Mm-hmm. And so we, 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 can't, we can't have it both ways. If, if, to your point, if e-commerce continues to do what it does and everyone from you know, Joe Schmo in the city to Joe Schmo and his, and his lovely wife in, in rural, uh, you know, uh, rural Tennessee have access to the same sort of e-commerce features, then there's going to be less of a use for all of that real estate. Yeah. The real estate the real estate cannot exist. So so when you look at the suburban the suburban areas that I'm talking about every single corner has has a shopping center. Mm-hmm. Every single one. Every every you know there are three major malls in every city. One is doing well, two are hanging on by a thread. Those two are going to be hard pressed to exist. Yeah. So what do you do with all of that land? What like why do you buy a house there when you're looking at empty buildings? Mm-hmm. I think that I think it's a it's a great point. I think that, you know, I, I don't want to try to ventriloquize uh, the, the the reasons why tens of millions of people why that I don't know, you know, buy houses where they buy. Um, but I do think that especially when people are making decisions to live in the suburbs, those decisions are more about private space, um, affordability, uh, quality of school district, proximity to uh, business centers and jobs than they are about local amenities um, that are in physical stores. I'm not saying it's not an, I'm not saying it's not a factor. I'm just saying that I think that factor might be tertiary for people who are already deciding 
to not live in a city or leave a city and move into a suburban neighborhood where their house is is not perched right over you know some restaurant uh, or you know bar or J Crew, um, and as a result, I think that they might continue to make this decision to move to the suburbs with the understanding that even if that mall that's a five minute drive away might have 10 years ago been a great place to take the kids over the weekend. Um, and it's now, you know, desiccated or entirely shut down or only parts of it are open. They still might say, well, look, if we want something from that sports authority, if we want something from that pay less, um, uh, which don't really exist anymore, but if, if, you know, if we want sports equipment or we want those shoes, um, we can just buy it online. So we actually have the best of both worlds. We, we have a proximate retailer that just exists in the cloud, um, and we have a lawn um, and a cheaper house. And I just feel like a lot of Americans are going to be making that decision and and not be so discouraged uh, from moving to the suburbs just because the the malls are shutting down. Um, where I think that that you know your prediction is, is really interesting, and where I'm you know worried about and, and something that I had never thought about until we had, we were talking online is uh, uh, so what what will the spillover effects be of shuttered malls? Um, on government revenue, um, if the malls fail and a handful of people move away because they lost their favorite store, or they lost that sense of community, um, could the quality of the amenities in the area decrease such that the suburb becomes significantly less desirable for everybody? Where even if prices begin to drop, people aren't buying. I, I agree. I think that's a that's an interesting concern. I just feel like a lot of people are still going to want to live in suburbs near roads that they can use to drive into, you know, wherever their suburban uh, or urban office is. I think that's a well-stated point. Um, you know, all of this is really interesting to me because we're talking about several layers of American society. We're talking about um, the the economics of buying a home. We're talking about the retail layer and and government incentives as it relates to that. But we're also talking about the dynamics of sociology and frankly, we're talking about race, right? Like none of this would have happened had, you know, the president not signed, you know, a few pieces of legislation in the 1950s that took malls from one to 10,000 in about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so like the beginning of this, where, where do you see, where do you see the balance, right? Like I agree with you in a sense, people will move to the suburbs but not because they want to, but because they have to. Yeah, I, I think... Um, sorry, keep, keep going. No, I, I just think it's like, I, I see sort of a reverse migration in ways, right? Like if you can afford to be around places that look nice and places that have physical amenities, um, then you will. But if you can't, then you'll move out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, where, where I live in Columbus, we're already sort of beginning to see that. There, there are wonderful, you know, middle class and upper middle class suburbs here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. And there, there are suburbs that you look at and you're like, you can see how over the years, the city became, to your point, became so desirable that people began to trickle out of it because they could no longer afford it. And those suburbs don't look the same as they looked 15, 20 years ago. In a greater sense, I see I see that happening. So you know, I think I think the 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 term was um, in the '60s. I think it was white flight, right? 
yeah, I, I sort of see the op the opposite happening mm-hmm. now, and 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 I, I I see retail being sort of the precipice of this, right? I mean, you certainly have you know reverse great migration effects um, uh, with regard to you know black families moving to the suburbs of the South, whereas in the middle of the twentieth century. Uh, the initial great migration was a lot of middle-class black families moving from the South into uh, the urban areas or close suburban areas um, of the Northeast and, and, uh, and Rust Belt um, or Great Lakes region. Um, so you're definitely seeing, you're, you're definitely seeing that element of a reverse great migration. But as I see it, that reverse great migration is, is going to the suburbs. Um, it's, it's families choosing to move uh, their kids into sunnier suburbs, not necessarily into sunnier uh, downtown areas. Um, and so I, you know, I, I just feel like the reason that people move to cities, the reason that they are willing to pay that 30% premium or, or whatever percent premium to live in, um, in a downtown area that's more expensive and where your uh, space is, is smaller and you don't necessarily have any kind of yard um, it's because of the amenities. It's because of the vibe of the city. But a lot of those amenities and a lot of those vibes are going to be directly attacked by the pandemic. Um, restaurants are not going to feel like restaurants if they're socially distanced. Clubs are not going to feel like clubs. Bars point. are not going to feel like bars. And as a result, I just think a lot of people in their 20s and 30s that otherwise would be so happy to live that classic city life of you know 2000 to 2019 just aren't going to be able to find that in the same cities. And as a result, they're going to say, look, if, if I can save thousands of dollars and um, live in uh, a near suburban area, you know, I, 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 I've only lived in, in DC, um, Chicago and New York. So I unfortunately only, only really know um, that the suburbs of those three cities particularly well, but like your Hoboken's, your Alexandria's, Peachy counties, those kind of places. Um, you might just say, look, it's, it's cheaper to live in the suburb. And what am I getting by by living over a bar that's only twenty five percent filled all the time? Not that much. Um, everything that I almost everything that I want, um, other than you know a few uh, uh, drinks a week potentially after work, I can I can get online. And so the the amenity distinction between the suburbs and the cities has closed, even though the price hasn't necessarily closed. And as a result, I just think they're going to choose to live, um, you know, in in urban light areas rather than in more expensive downtown areas. And as a result, you're going to have a little bit of parity in terms of pricing between cities and suburbs. Um, you know, maybe that parity swings both ways. And this is why I have a longer term prediction that as cities get cheaper um, and immigration ramps back up and the economy ramps back up and mom and pop stops, mom and pop stores ramp back up, that cities could have this interesting rebirth after the forest fire. Um, but I, I just do feel like in the next few years, there's so much working against the vibe of cities if this disease is um you know remains as as deadly and as serious as it currently is you're you're very you're very enthusiastically convincing to to say the least i should say i should say just just before you you give your um uh your but or although answer um my confidence in the future is always very low um uh you know i'm already reading stories about how um uh the lithuanian capital uh, whose name I've now forgotten, um, is turning its streets into essentially alfresco restaurants and allowing all of these stores to to put tables and chairs um, into the plazas and squares and, and streets um, around it. 
um, in a way. And you know, that, that's a that's a lovely innovation. I, I love that idea. Um, and I, I I wonder if if cities are going to come up with similarly innovative ways to retain the identity and, and enthusiasm for which people move to them in the first place. Um, it's totally possible. Um, and one of the things about the kind of predictions that I'm making is that it's not like predicting the weather where I can say there's a, I can say it's going to rain tomorrow and the rain doesn't care what prediction I make. It's not listening to my prediction. It's going to rain or it's not going to rain. The weather's indifferent. Um, you know, cities are not indifferent to the predictions of, you know, of analysts or writers. Um, they pay attention. Um, I've already gotten so many emails from retail developers in DC um, about uh, this piece that I wrote. Those retailers and those retail developers might take my suggestion, take my doomsday predictions, and then respond to them by designing certain parts of DC that make it even more fit for people who love to live in cities. Um, and so, the, and, and thereby prove my prediction wrong. So that could happen. Um, I could be, I could end up totally wrong and, and you could end up uh, absolutely right. And cities could have a, a surprising, um, but powerful, you know, renaissance in the next few years as well. I, I listen. I I don't think that there was a there was a but or an although in my statement. I, I thought that it was pretty convincing, but I do think that when you discuss commercial development, right? Whenever uh, I'm around a lot of developers, and whenever they discuss what you're talking about, the first thing that they do is they say, "Okay, how do we build a city center?" Yeah. How do we how do we contract retailers and great restaurants and great bars and all these things? to come to this desolate location that didn't exist two years ago and build a proxy city. The, yeah. pro- the point is, the problem rather, is that you can't do that if a lot of these key stores and bars and restaurants don't exist. So the entire value proposition of these areas becomes the home itself. And I just don't. I I don't think that that's. I don't think that that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's the the entire value proposition of living in an area in a suburban area is it has a community feel. There's a pool where kids play, and there's the shopping center where you can support your next door neighbor who owns the shop next to Walmart or excuse me next to Whole Foods or whatever it is. Um, that's where we contend, and we may not we may not see eye to eye on that, but I I do think that you have you've painted an illustrious picture of what you feel it's going to be like, and I can see a situ- I can see a circumstance where like that that is the case. Yeah, yeah. In that case, I, I suppose we're we're in um, newfound agreement. Well, okay, so in closing, you know, I think one of the things that's most fascinating about this is sort of the origin of over retail. Um, you are a much better researcher than I am. Like, do you agree or disagree with sort of the uh, hypothesis of how over retail be- begun? And do you, you know, where do you see it leveling off in the future? We'll close with that. Well, I, dis- I disagree with the premise. I think your research is is incredible. Um, I and I've and I've used it before. So to so to say that my research is superior is like you know you you are in many in many ways my my primary resource for a lot of this stuff. And I've, I've quoted you before. Um, what I would say about the thesis is that I think it's totally accurate. I think it's really important. You know, I, I'm always interested when I'm writing um, articles about the future to to look to history. 
um, because I don't think history repeats, but it definitely rhymes. And we can learn from history to avoid the mistakes that have been made the decades before us. Um, I do think that a lot of suburbanization in the U.S. flows directly uh, from policies that if they weren't explicitly racist, were carried out in racist ways. You know, um, I don't think that the construction of national highway system um, was a racist proposition. Uh, I, I believe that Eisenhower saw the national defense prerogative of having a national highway system. Um, however, the way that highways were built in American cities was explicitly racist. Uh, local developers often looked to um, minority and low-income neighborhoods and said, okay, let's put an urban highway right here and smash the neighborhood. It happened everywhere in D.C. and New York and uh, Chicago, Los Angeles yep. and Nashville. Um, in Chicago, yep, exactly. In, in basically every American city. So I, I absolutely think that that deep history is is there when you look for it. It's important to, I think, you know, keep in mind when you're making policy for the future, how do we, ma- how do we make policy that's equitable um, and not just convenient for those who happen to have privilege and power at the moment that the policy is being carried out? Um, and uh, at the same time, yeah, I, I think that, that you know, we, you, can, you can take that history um, of the suburbs and keep it sort of, keep it in mind while also saying there might be reasons why people move to the suburbs that are utterly orthogonal to race. Um, you know, people liking yards, I don't think has anything to do with race. Um, people liking bigger kitchens and uh, houses with more bedrooms, I don't think that has anything to do with race. Um, people, you know, just not having enough money uh, to, to buy a, you know, a, a three or four bedroom in DC. Um, uh, you know, income inequality has a racial component, but, you know, wanting to move to the suburbs because you're middle class, uh, that's totally understandable. Um, so I think that, I think that, you know, race is important for explaining how we got to here, um, but it doesn't necessarily motivate everybody's decisions about where they move. Um, agree. And not that you were suggesting yeah. that. I'm just, right. Um, and, and so I just think that the reasons why people are going to continue moving to the suburbs um, are just, uh, those reasons are so top of mind um, and they're so core to, uh, to individuals' lives as they're, you know, building a family and figuring out where to stake the next 15 years of their lives. And I just think a lot of people are going to continue um, making the kinds of decisions that they've been making for the last 70 years and certainly for, uh, for the last two years, uh, which is that they're going to start to leave expensive downtown areas, especially when cities become more boring. And they're going to, to look for sunnier suburbs uh, because people like space and people like sun. Well, Derek, listen, I've learned a ton talking to you. I know it's been a short conversation, but I think it's been a powerful one. And I, I thank you so much for joining us. And I, I can't wait to get this out to, uh, to the 2PM community. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. This is fun.